Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman continues his sermon series titled, Asking for a Friend. Today, part five, has Christianity been complicit in injustice? Here's Dr. Tom Goodman. We're in the middle of a series called Asking for a Friend. We're taking a look at the questions that non-believers ask about our faith. And today, we're going to deal with the question, has Christianity been complicit in injustice? In a recent poll, nearly 40% of Americans said that religion has made the world worse instead of better. And many of them wonder how Christians could have ignored or even defended things like European colonial exploitation in the 18th century, or slavery in the 19th century, or Jim Crow laws in the 20th century, and they conclude that far from solving the world's problems, Christianity has contributed to them. So we need to address this question because for a lot of people, they won't even consider Christianity unless we do. But we need to consider this question because there's somebody a lot more important to us that considers this question important as well. And I'm talking about the living God. In this passage that John read to us, did you notice that God dismissed all their worship music? He dismissed all of their pious prayers. He dismissed all of their religious routines. As far as he was concerned, it didn't mean anything as long as they were indifferent to the subject of justice. So this morning, what I want us to do is look at what justice isn't and what justice is, and then I want us to ask how we measure up. It's really going to help if you have your sermon notes with you. You can find them in our online bulletin. So even if you're here in the building, it would be helpful for you to have a mobile device and open up to hillcrest.church bulletin. You'll find the uh, sermon notes right there. And first of all, we need to clear the deck of what justice isn't. So that's the first thing we're going to look at it, what justice isn't. We have been influenced, even as Christians, by the cultural secular left and by the cultural secular right much more than we realize. And probably for one reason, it's because Christians don't talk about the subject of justice. It comes up in our Bibles a lot, but we don't talk about it a lot. And so Christians are left to their own devices and they drift toward the secular cultural left or the secular cultural right for an explanation of what justice is. Uh, But when we look into the Bible, we see that there's a much richer, more robust understanding of justice than what we find just on the cultural secular right, or the cultural secular left. So the cultural left says that justice is accomplished when power is redistributed. It's based on the teachings of Karl Marx, and the cultural left says that the condition you're in is not due to individual choices, it's not due to personal character, it's not due to different abilities that different people have, it's based exclusively entirely upon where you find yourself in the structure of society. And so justice is the process of taking power from those who have uh, privilege from the systems and the structures of society and redistributing it to those who are seen as oppressed. Now, the cultural right says exactly the opposite. If the cultural left says it's not based in uh, uh, your, your character or your drive, it's based in societal systems, the cultural right turns around and says it's not based in systems at all, it's based entirely upon 
uh, your character and based upon your drive and your work ethic and so on. And, and so those on the right say that justice is simply ensuring that everyone gets a fair shake. Anything beyond that is going beyond the requirements of justice. And so when someone proposes that justice requires that society needs to be balanced through government regulation or through a social safety net, those on the cultural secular right would say that this goes beyond the requirements of justice and it's nothing but interference with a completely neutral uh, free market system. Now, the left then tells us that the condition that someone in has everything to do with social systems and the right says that the condition that someone's in is entirely based upon their personal character and their personal choices. And when we turn to the Bible, the cultural left and the cultural right both get critiqued. So, for example, the cultural left does not know what to do with verses like, look at this one, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, which says, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich. So that verse is telling us that it's personal character. It is your responsible choices. It is your drive that has a huge impact on uh, the situation you find yourself in. On the other hand, the cultural right doesn't know what to do with verses like Proverbs 13. Take a look at that one. Proverbs 13 verse 23 says, A poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it away. So that's telling us that sometimes the condition you're in is beyond your control, and not because of natural occurrences such as floods or tornadoes, but because of human occurrences, because people uh, who are more powerful can act unjustly toward those who are in a weaker position in terms of power, and all the things they do, they can have good character, they can have hard work, and it can all be swept away because of, what does this passage say? Injustice. Now notice this passage doesn't say because of an unjust person. I mean, if that was all it was, then all you'd have to do is take the unjust person to court and the scales would be balanced and the poor person would have his day in court and everything would be fine. But it doesn't say the unjust person takes away this person's rights. It's injustice sweeps away this person's rights. Now, I know that the word systemic is a dirty word in many circles, especially on the right. But when you look at this particular verse... I can't help but think that there's something systemic going on when injustice is what sweeps away that which somebody tries to work so hard for. You know, the word systemic should not be a dirty word among Christians. Of all people, Bible-believing Christians should believe in such things as systemic evil and systemic racism and systemic injustice. We believe that the human heart is so deeply ingrained with sin now, why shouldn't we be surprised that when human beings assemble together into communities and when human beings set up processes for those communities to work, then sinful human hearts would end up creating sinful human systems. This passage in Proverbs tells us that we need to recognize that there, are sometimes, uh, there is sometimes injustice that keeps somebody from being able to be the kind of person that they want to be. So the Bible critiques those on the right and on the left. The Bible says to those on the cultural left, look, you're wrong to assume that personal character and personal choices don't have any impact over the situation that somebody's in. But the Bible also says to those on the cultural right, you're wrong to ignore the ways a society is often set up to make it harder for someone to even have an opportunity to succeed. 
But the Bible doesn't just critique the cultural right and the cultural left. The Bible also tells us what justice is. So we've looked at what justice isn't. Now let's look at what justice is. That's the second point on your notes. Now I've thought a lot about this subject of justice over the years. We can take a look at this picture I think that is available and I think this is, uh, yeah, this, I had hair back then. This is, this is me at 29. I had the privilege during that season of my life to speak uh, at the House uh, and the Senate committees in Louisiana on behalf of Louisiana Baptists. I think in this particular picture I'm speaking on the subject of um, religious liberty. Uh, so we're dealing with religious liberty in this day and age and it's really frightening where uh, the protection of religious liberty has come, but back when I was a whippersnapper, we were dealing with that as well. But uh, I remember the most significant opportunity I had in front of the uh, committees of the House and Senate in the Louisiana, Louisiana legislature was to speak regarding pro-life issues. And I still think that uh, the pro-life cause is the most significant justice issue of our day. I think that Christians, of all people, should take care of the weak and the vulnerable from the womb to the tomb and all points in between. But that season in my life in my mid and late 20s where I had an opportunity to speak about justice issues and to try to figure out how the issue of the pro-life cause fit into the larger worldview picture of justice that Christianity has, it made me turn to a lot of sources to try to understand the right thinking on this. And so I drew from Francis Schaeffer. I drew from Chuck Colson of Prison Fellowship. I drew from Marvin Alasky, especially what he had to say about welfare reform. I uh, drew from uh, the late English pastor, John Stott. And most recently, not surprising for some of you, I've drawn from the writings of Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And this past summer, under the cloud of a cancer diagnosis, he nevertheless uh, released this prolific amount of writing about the hottest issue of our day, racism, and how we're to think of racism under the Christian worldview regarding justice. And so there on your sermon notes, you'll find at the bottom some articles that uh, have been written by him and a book that's been written by him some years back on biblical justice. Now, Keller says that biblical justice is characterized by four things, by generosity, equality, advocacy, and repentance. And so what I want to do in my own words is give to us some action steps we need to follow so that we can live out this char these characteristics of biblical justice. So write these things down in your notes. First of all, practice radical generosity. Practice radical generosity. The cultural right says that your money belongs to you. The cultural left, at least in a socialist form, says your money belongs to the state. The Bible says your money belongs to God. And not just 10% of it, all of it belongs to God. And he allows you to use it for your own needs and he wants you to give from your personal property sacrificially to meet the needs of other people. And so the Bible protects private property, the Bible protects personal property, but the Bible says it all belongs to God, and you're to take care of your needs with it, but you're to give sacrificially to take care of the needs of other people as well. Here's a biblical reference, Job chapter 29. Job at this juncture was trying to defend how upright, how upstanding his life was. And so in defense, what does he say? Look at verse 4. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. Now, in what way did he wear justice like clothing? He goes on to explain, verses 15 and 16. I was eyes to the blind. 
I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. Now, we tend to think of soup kitchens and food pantries and homeless shelters as mercy ministries. And I guess in a way they are, but really we need to understand these things as justice ministries. Because what is mercy? Mercy is giving somebody what they don't deserve. And the reality is when sometimes you're helping out at the soup kitchen, you're giving soup to somebody who I guess technically doesn't deserve it. They, uh, it's their character that's got them in the situation they're in. It's their wrong choices that have gotten them into the situation they're in. But according to the Bible, more often than not, when you're helping somebody generously, it's not an act of mercy but an act of justice. If mercy is giving somebody what they don't deserve, justice is giving somebody what they deserve. And we need to recognize that social systems and structures are set up in such a way that often unjust results come to pass. And when we give sacrificially to somebody else to meet their need, we're balancing the scales that an unjust society has left people in. Here's a second characteristic of biblical justice. Pursue universal equality. Pursue universal equality. In one of his articles, Keller writes this, biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards, with the same respect, regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. Now, why is that? Because of the first two chapters of Genesis. Genesis tells us that every person you see has been made just like you in the image of God. And so every person you see is worthy, just as you are, of dignity and respect and equal treatment. And so therefore, it's no surprise that when that kind of God took on flesh and lived in our midst in the person of Jesus, that God in whose image we are, it's no surprise then that Jesus was often paying attention to people we don't often pay attention to, people out on the margins of society, racial outsiders like Gentiles and Samaritans, social outsiders like lepers, religious outsiders like prostitutes. He saw them precious and valuable because they were made in his image. And those of us who follow him or claim to follow him, we've got that responsibility as well. So radical generosity, universal equality. Here's a third characteristic of Christian justice. Engage in life-changing advocacy. Proverbs chapter 29, 7 says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. The righteous care about justice for the poor. So if you're going to be a righteous person, according to the Bible, it's not just a matter of giving a handout to somebody in need. That's included because uh, we've already looked at radical generosity is what we need to be practicing. But in addition to that, we ought to care about the subject of justice for the poor. We should pay attention to somebody at their point of crisis, but we also ought to back up and repair the guardrails to keep other people from falling into that problem. So we ought to look at the causes. We ought to look at the cure when it comes to these types of things as well. And by the way, I'm quoting several verses that have to do with the poor. It's not just people who are financially poor that the Bible cares about. The poor is a category of people who are weak and therefore vulnerable to exploitation. Obviously, that includes the poor, but there are other people as well in our society who face that sort of challenge and difficulty as well. And it's righteous people who care about justice for those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, those who are exposed, the poor, and others as well. Our world is a place of uneven distribution of resources. 
Our world is a place of uneven distribution of opportunities. It's a place where the vulnerable are often exploited or at least overlooked by people who are in power to do something about it. And that means that what we need to do is be people who are offering a handout, of course, and radical generosity, but also advocating for those who find themselves in exploited and in vulnerable positions. And so we need to include things like mentoring in an under-resourced public school, or we need to provide job training, or we need to ensure fair housing practices, or we need to support a legal aid organization, or we need to volunteer in a pregnancy care center. Advocacy is what is required. Here's a fourth thing, repent. Repent of personal and corporate responsibility. It is personal and corporate responsibility that we need to repent of, according to the Bible. First of all, we need to repent of personal responsibility when we find ourselves engaged in unjust practices. So if we've personally made decisions about rental properties we own or a business we run, and those decisions have ended up harming people who are vulnerable, then we need to repent of that just as we need to repent of adultery. You know, the we who are typically more conservative and evangelical, we often have a lot to say about what the Bible has to say about sexuality. But the Bible has a lot more to say about unjust treatment of other people than it does about sexual sin. Now, that doesn't mean sexual sin is unimportant. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what the Bible says uh, to the question, who does God care what, who I sleep with? We're going to talk about that. But the Bible has a whole lot to say about how your actions and how your participation in society ends up negatively impacting weak and vulnerable people. We need to repent of personal responsibility. But what about corporate responsibility? Do we have any need to repent of the decisions that our racial or national forebears conducted? Now, in our individualistic West, and especially in the United States, everything in our culture would tell us to say no. But then what do you do with Ezra chapter 9? What do you do with Daniel chapter 9? In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra repents. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel repents. In neither case do they repent of things they were personally engaged in doing. They are participating in a repentance process for sins that had long ago been committed. You look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel wasn't around when the people had committed all the sins that led to Babylonian exile, but he sure was suffering the consequences of it still 70 years later. And so it seems to me that the principle is this. If you are still suffering the consequences of decisions your forebears made, or if you're, still, or if you're enjoying the benefits of the sinful decisions your forebears made, then you're still responsible to repent of those things. It seems perfect sense to me. Four characteristics of justice that we need to make sure that we are involved in. Generosity, equality, advocacy, and repentance. Now, I admit that's a quick outline of some very complex and occasionally controversial topics. And we do need to keep in mind that Christians apply those principles in different ways. And especially when we get into public policy issues and political issues, we, we are going to differ as Christians about how to apply those things in political ways. But we need to make sure we are measuring ourselves against all four of these principles all the time. And if that's the the case, then we need to ask one more question. How do we measure up? 
We've looked at what justice isn't, we've looked at what justice is, but now how do we measure up? Like I said at the beginning of our study, a growing number of people don't think Christians across the years have measured up really well when it comes to justice. Two things need to be said about that. First, secular people who criticize Christianity for injustice need to understand that you're using somebody else's worldview to make that assessment. You are using the worldview that Christians have given the world to evaluate how well Christians are doing with justice issues. Now, this is a hard subject for some people who are secular or atheistic to really agree with, but it's absolutely true that you are borrowing from our worldview to critique us. And that's okay. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. But just understand, your worldview can't support your offense at the injustices of Christians. Only the Christian worldview can support the offense that people ought to feel regarding the injustices of Christians. Concepts like equality, concepts like a special obligation of the weak and vulnerable, concepts like human rights, there are people who assume that that's just what it means to be human. The humans have always believed these things, but it is not true. When Christianity entered into Greek and Roman culture, do you know what Greeks and Romans believed in the ancient time? One of their philosophers, Aristotle, said that certain men were created to be masters, and some were created, therefore, to be slaves and servants. And so it was the strangest thing in the hearts and minds of Greek and Roman people to hear Christians talk about the fact that everybody was created in the image of God and therefore equal. And then when Christianity expanded out into what is now known as Europe, they ran across a number of Germanic tribes, and a number of these Germanic tribal chieftains were absolutely baffled by this Christian teaching that the strong should use their strength for the protection of the weak and the vulnerable. The German tribal chieftains thought that was strange. In fact, they didn't think that that made any sort of sense at all for the protection of their various tribes. It was the strong overmatching the weak that would get their tribes everything that they needed. But Christianity came in and gave them a completely different worldview. And slowly, as Christianity began to dominate over what is now Europe, and over into England and over into the United States, that worldview followed. Now as we find Christianity drying up in Europe and Christianity maybe eventually drying up in the United States, what will be left? Because equality and the strong being responsible for the weak instead of taking advantage of the weak, that came into the world, that came into Christian history, I mean, came into history, human history, through Christianity. Remember what I said last week, that if you are somebody who believes in um, uh, atheistic naturalism, uh, what you believe is that uh, we're all here by chance and happenstance. We're all here because the evolutionary process, not through any purpose or intentionality, just sort of threw us up into existence. And eventually, the whole process will eventually extinguish us as well. You're not going to get the equality of all humans from that worldview. You're not going to get the responsibility of the strong taking care of the weak from that worldview. And so you need to understand that if you believe that there are certain ways that people ought to be treated, if you believe that the weak should not be exploited, if you believe that all people are treated equal, just understand that didn't, that didn't come to you through your worldview. It came to you through an inherited worldview. It came to you through the worldview of Christianity that has dominated Western civilization for the last several centuries. So if you're a non-believer who's concerned about this track record that Christianity has with injustice, just understand that you're using our worldview to do it. But the reality is that that's okay. 
because we should be judged by ourselves or by others, by the worldview we've introduced to the world. And the reality is when we do that, we find that throughout human history, even to this day, we haven't been consistent at living out our worldview. And yet here's the thing. At any point along the way in human history where you see Christians in power exploiting those who are weak and vulnerable, it is also Christians who are correcting their wayward Christians. Right now I'm finishing up Tom Holland's latest book. It's called Dominion, subtitle, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's 550 pages long, so at least set aside a weekend if you want to deal with it. And Holland is not a Christian. He's a historian. He has says early in the book that he's beginning to rethink some of the Christianity he had of his childhood, but he's not a Christian. And, and he, you know, expresses the failures of Christianity at every point throughout the historical process that he's looking through. But he always says that Christians have never been able to remain comfortable with exploitation and abuses of power for very long. And why? He says, Holland says that Christianity's main symbol is a cross, which points to the main story of Christianity, of a poor man who is exploited by Roman colonial powers for their own purposes. Now, if you turn that into song and you sing that every week and you take the Lord's Supper into your hands, a picture of a poor man whose body was broken in injustice for you and you take it into your mouth, it can't help but change you over time. And what Holland himself says, as as, as not a Christian book, it's not a Christian apologetics book, but what he himself says is over and over again, wherever Christians in power have ended up exploiting that power for the abuse of other people, it's other Christians who've corrected those Christians. So it's the Christian message that corrects our Christian mistakes. It's not like some secular atheistic movement has come in each time along the way and forced Christians to do what they didn't really want to do and finally things are set right in the world. It's other Christians who've come along to say to Christians in power, you're doing it wrong. This isn't the way the Christian worldview ought to be lived out. And over and over again, we see this throughout Christian history. It's the Christian message that corrects our Christian mistakes. Now, what is the Christian message? It's a story of a Lord who divested himself of the privileges of the power, the privileges and the power of heaven to come and serve us in our spiritual poverty. We believe that Jesus was God visiting us in person, but he did so as a poor man on the bottom rung of society. He became the victim of an unjust trial and experienced torture and death at the hands of Roman military occupiers. It is impossible to teach that. It is impossible to sing that. It is impossible to take the the elements of that in the Lord's Supper and not ever think about what God thinks about what you're doing with power. And so whenever Christians have behaved unjustly in human history, you'll also find Christians pointing out how we're not living in consistency with our own message. As a recent example of this process, think about the civil rights movement. As the Civil War ended and Then for decades, even into the 1960s, much of the nation, especially in the South, lived under so-called Jim Crow laws, which were very unfavorable and unjust to black Americans. And a number of white Christians prominently defended this reality, or at least ignored it. But it wasn't some enlightened secular scold who came along to tell us how we ought to live. 
It was a Christian, a Baptist pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. who led the civil rights movement against injustice. And how did he do that? If you read or listen to his speeches, they were not academic lectures. They were sermons, like the one you're hearing today, based upon the Bible. And so what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing was speaking to a nation that at that time was filled with Christians and a part of the nation that was really filled with Christians, the South. And he was telling us as a Christian to live in consistency with our own Christian message. Nearly 30 years after King's assassination, the artist Maya Lin, who had already been famous for the design of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, was commissioned to create a civil rights memorial that now stands in my birth town of Montgomery, Alabama. And she came up with a simple memorial made up of three materials, white granite, black granite, and water. As you walk into the memorial, which is absolutely built overwhelmingly of white granite, you come across two objects that are made of black granite, one a horizontal disk and the other a vertical wall. And at the horizontal disk, there's water flowing over it. And you look through the sheet of water and you find inscribed into that black granite the names and the actions of the civil rights movement. You can walk around the disk and in order you'll find these things inscribed. And then behind that disk there is a wall also made of black granite. And water flows down this granite as well. And through that sheet of water you can see the words we started with this morning. Let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. People say that they walk away from that memorial touched. They can put their fingers through that water and touch those words of Scripture. Or they can just stand back and see their own reflection in that sheet of water superimposed over those words, making them wonder how well they've lived up to those words themselves. Maya Lin said that she was inspired to create something entirely consisting of white granite, black granite, and water because of this verse in Amos chapter 5 that Martin Luther King so famously quoted in his I Have a Dream speech. He said there, there are there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. A Christian minister calling a then mostly Christian nation to live in consistency with our Christian vision of justice. That's how that which is unjust has been made just over the years. Now, does this mean that there's nothing Christians can learn from the secular cultural left or the secular cultural right about justice? Absolutely not. There are a number of things that we can learn. Sometimes people who are outside of Christianity are the ones that shame us in living inconsistently with our vision. But don't trade in your birthright for a mess of pottage. Don't trade in your birthright of biblical justice for that which is so inadequately justice on the cultural right or the cultural left. Let's look to the Jesus who came as a poor man who died in our place so that he might lift us up out of our spiritual poverty. And then let's follow him 
This is the biblical vision of justice that is worth cherishing and worth mimicking. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman continues his series, Asking for a Friend, with part six, What Good is Hell? I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.